Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, a Pittsburgh artist channels the Steel City's mythology and struggles into tarot cards. I really wanted to explore this idea of like this history that's constantly recycling and repeating and echoing in this area, but at the same time, you know, try to be a little celebratory and not just negative. <laughs> Western North Carolina author Ron Rash shares his thoughts on writing about Appalachians. You don't want to sentimentalize the people. You don't want to demonize them because to me, sentimentalizing uh, a group of people in, in a novel is in many ways just as bad because either way, you're, you're just simply denying their humanity. And we hear about efforts in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley to return a young bald eagle to the wild. Parents may still be around, but at this point, they don't want to see this bird. They want him to go get a job. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Appalachia is full of haunting stories and folktales. Now, a Pittsburgh artist is channeling some of these stories into a tarot deck. Genevieve Barbie Turner grew up on the Virginia coast, but made a deliberate decision to move to Pittsburgh after high school. She started making tarot decks about Pittsburgh lore and issues in the city such as harm reduction, homelessness, and gentrification. I wanted to speak with Barbie Turner about how she got started and what led her to branch out into Appalachia. Genevieve Barbie Turner, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. 20 years ago, you made a move from a coastal city to Pittsburgh. What attracted you to that area? My mother is from Pittsburgh, and so I had visited uh, actually Natrona Heights many, many times as a kid. And so uh, when I was looking at universities, um, I knew that I did not want to go to a major city. Pittsburgh was familiar to me. I just decided uh, I'll apply to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, once I moved here, um, I I remember vividly uh, taking the 54C into the South Side and seeing how the hills were just dotted with all of these beautiful lights, and it felt like I don't know, like the sky had just descended, you know, in a way that I'd never seen it before. I was just, Pittsburgh is so beautiful. It is such a beautiful place to me. Um, and I just fell in love with its crooked, weird streets and its, uh, you know, iconic neighborhoods and just how unique. I mean, there is no other city that is like Pittsburgh. Um, and so I, there was just never really a reason to leave. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I graduated college in 2007 and with a major in art, uh, and kind of had a pretty good idea that I was going to, you know, fund my art habit by working in a variety of different jobs. And this seemed like the best place to do it. How did you get started making tarot decks? I studied uh, painting, drawing, and printmaking at CMU, and specifically printmaking. Uh, why am I talking about that? Why is that related to cards? Well, I, I love this idea of the serial image, um, and it's, it's sort of what kind of attracted me to printmaking in the first place. Um, and then I um, really kind of discovered what my art practice was. I started making art every single day, and one of those things was a project called That's What You're Good At, and I would ask people... Uh, like what is what is something that you're good at, you know? And I would draw them doing that thing, and I just had this flash of like, this would be so cool as like a deck of cards. Uh, and tarot is something that just automatically, you know, um, revealed itself to me. I, um, you know, if you're familiar with the tarot, the major arcana starts with zero. It doesn't start with one. It starts with zero, which is the fool card. And then the rest of the cards really is uh, evidence of the journey of the fool through all of these major ideas of the major arcana. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I think about it in my head, like the fool meets the magician and what does the fool learn from the magician? And, you know, the the fool experiences death and like what, you know, what happens after that? Um, and I saw this uh, opportunity to use tarot as a medium to kind of talk about the things that I wanted to talk about, which led me to create Bridge Witches, a tarot deck. Would you mind walking through the tarot decks you've designed so far? So when I created Bridge Witches, I knew that it w there was no way that I could put all of the stories that I wanted to put in there. So I actually designed it with the idea that I would constantly be updating it. 
So uh, the first one, um, I, oh my gosh, I really put myself through it with that one because, and this is what happens a lot. I'll constantly be thinking, is it tarot enough? Is it Pittsburgh enough? Is it this enough? Is it that enough? I divided each of the suits into the four directions of the city. Uh, so, uh, and I changed the suits a little bit. So instead of swords, it was fences and in the fences suit, uh, which would be swords in a traditional tarot deck, um, it was all the North side and it was all winter, right? So North side, North Hills, right? So I put things in um, and I would ask people, I'd be like, what's a, what's a place like, you know, the, where you grew up or something. Um, and I actually am friends with my current state rep and hopeful County executive, Sarah Ann Amarado, because she's from uh, that area. She grew up in like the Millvale kind of area. So I asked her all these questions about it and she was like, oh, you should put this one uh, place that like nobody ever thinks about, like that I just love. That's like this fake little doorway that kind of goes into nothing. Uh, and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So I would have all these deep cuts from people that grew up here, just wandering around Pittsburgh. Uh, then the trees, which is the wands is East end, which is the one I knew the most. Cause I have lived in the East end since I've moved to Pittsburgh and I just put everything in there, you know, like the zombie card, uh, which is not part of that suit, but is major arcana, but uh, was <laughs> about gentrification, but also about, you know, alcoholism and also about, you know, uh, millionaires row and just, you know, all of these little tiny things. Um, and I really wanted to include uh, the different uh, immigrant populations that came to Pittsburgh and not just, you know, the first colonists, but also the different waves and including like the more recent waves of folks from Asia and Southeast Asia. So there's all of these little like hints and hits within each of uh, those. And then each iteration, each volume kind of grows and changes. Like I wanted to talk about the gig economy um, and how uh, I, I was initially making bridge witches at a time when we were talking about new Pittsburgh and wh who knew Pittsburgh was for um, and what that meant. And as I did, as I was working on this, it was just kind of this reaction to like, okay, well, Uber came and the world didn't change for us here. You know, like this investment in technology that was supposed to be, you know, so great for the city, like doesn't really seem to have gone anywhere. It's almost like, you know, when the robber barons came invested, quote unquote, invested in Pittsburgh and, you know, around the uh, turn of the 20th century. And all they did was make millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, we had to fight for, you know, the weekend, right. And the eight hour workday. Um, and so I wanted to kind of like, especially within a, a tarot deck that is this cycle, I really wanted to explore this idea of like this history that's constantly recycling and repeating and echoing in this area. But at the same time, um, you know, try to be a little celebratory and not just negative <laughs> and uh, critiquing every little thing either. And then I've created some other decks. Uh, I won't really go super into them because they're not as relevant, but um, they're about mental health um, and queerness um, and uh, also my love of horror films. But what was interesting about creating these decks, uh, specifically the Pittsburgh ones, is I thought, oh, nobody's going to, it's just going to be popular here in Pittsburgh, you know, like local, whatever. I have sold these decks literally around the world. I've had, I have sent these decks to New Zealand. I've sent them to Sweden. I've sent them like to everywhere, you know, like uh, I think the only place I haven't sent them is somewhere in South America. So if you know somebody down there, <laughs> but yeah, it's wild. It's very, I find that this area is actually far more relevant and the stories that we have here are very relatable, I think, to other parts of the world as well. Yeah, I find myself relating to Pittsburgh culture and history and stories as a fellow Appalachian, but, you know, even as a human being. But I wanted to talk about Haunted because that is what made me aware of your work because it is sort of a broader, you know, more regional deck that's about Appalachia more than just Pittsburgh. How did, how did you start developing the ideas that are going into Haunted? Well, well I, I basically kept running into a wall. I was like, all I want to do is make this deck about Pittsburgh, but there's all these cool stories that are outside of Pittsburgh. And so I kind of always knew that I wanted to go more regional because they're, uh, this idea of Pittsburgh living inside of its own universe, um, I think is just not accurate or real, even if we are terrified of crossing bridges and rivers and things like that here. We hate driving places. Um, that's a Pittsburgh joke. And so I guess it was really just this extension of realizing that there's just so many more stories that I that I want to make art about that I'm inspired by. And it's been really hard, honestly, to to pare things down. Pittsburgh lives in this fun, like in this mountainous little cove, right? And the more that I read about the history, the more that I read 
about uh, kind of how culture sort of, I don't want to use the word trap because that's not what I mean, but how it kind of collected here, right? And kind of stayed and really sunk in to the, into the land here, right? Through blood, through sweat, right? Um, it, it's very unique uh, from other regions, right? And I think that has to do with the topography, that has to do with history, that has to do with Western movement and how all of that worked. And so when I started working on this deck, I talked to uh, Thomas White, who is, uh, he's a folklorist, he's an archivist, uh, a teacher. Um, he teaches at uh, La Roche College, but also he's an archivist at uh, Duquesne University. And he's written a bunch of books about Pennsylvania folklore. And so I sat down and I was talking to him about all of this and my interest in it. And he was like, yeah, um, basically <laughs> when I write these books, I can't really talk about things in Ohio. I can't really talk about things in West Virginia because publishers, they don't like that. They want everything kind of like, you know, to be in this nice geographical thing, but that's not how it works. That's not how stories work. And especially in this region. And we specifically talked about the convergence of the rivers here um, has been metaphorically, but also uh quite honestly, really, lit, quite literally, this uh, convergence of culture that then kind of goes out to the rest of the United States. And there's all of this, these echoes of of types of stories that you hear in other places that have passed through here. They're maybe not from here. They're from all over the world, right? And then they kind of come through here and spread out. And you could actually watch that happen, you know, as Western expansion and as white colonists, you know, moved uh, West, which I thought was fascinating. And so I wanted to include specifically West Virginia and Eastern Ohio, more like the foothills of uh, of the Appalachian you know, region there. And yeah, once I kind of found my footing within that, I was like, okay, this is perfect. I was going to ask you to verbally describe one or, t- one or two of the cards. This one is actually the lover's card. I found this book it's basically like a fireside folklore in West Virginia. It's about these two lovers, um, one of whom uh, the woman was put into a jail, right, into a jail cell. And her lover was there to kind of like watch, was like her guard at night. But really, uh, you know, they fell in love. And so he created this system that he was like, okay, I'm going to like leave this unlocked for you and you're going to go sneak into a coffin, right? That's just right outside of this jail cell. And I'm going to come meet you in there. And this is going to be like our little place, right? So, uh, you know, they were successful with this until, uh, and I remember she would like listen for the, the sound of this bell, right? So she'd wait for the sound of the bell that she could sneak out and go into this coffin and wait for her lover. And so she goes to do this and, uh, and he doesn't show up and she's like waiting and waiting and she's creeped out because there's somebody else in this coffin, but she's like, I still want to see my guy, you know, like this is, this is the deal. And then she finally lights this one little match that she has. And then she realizes that the man in the coffin is her lover and he's dead. And I was like, (gasps) I just thought that was like the best. (laughs) Genevieve Barbie Turner. Thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. That was Pittsburgh artist Genevieve Barbie Turner. Her new project is called Haunted, a Cursed Appalachian Tarot Deck. Find out more on our website, wvpublic.org. Ron Rash is an Appalachian poet, novelist, and short story writer. He's also a professor of Appalachian Cultural Studies at Western Carolina University. Rash has written more than 20 books, including several that appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. Rash recently turned 70. He has a new book called The Caretaker. It's set in Korean War-era Appalachia. Producer Bill Lynch spoke with Rash about the novel Appalachia and Getting Older. You've written quite a bit about place about Appalachia. But time is interesting. What drew you to the early 1950s and post-World War II, pre-Elvis, you know, the Korean War, that particular time? Well, several things. I I wanted actually one, which I became more conscious of as I got deeper in the book, was that with uh, the way technology is today, that was one of the last times when almost all human action was uh, face-to-face. And 
I think that in a way, uh, because of, you know, even what we're doing right now, but that's, I thought that's really interesting because uh, I think sometimes, and I do this too, we spend so much time kind of filtering through technology that we don't get that much more dramatic sense of of coming face to face with each other, particularly in, in very emotional moments. And so certainly uh, 1951 was at a time uh, before television, before uh, you know, there were some telephones, but nevertheless, uh, there wasn't a lot of that communication for, for a number of people. Korea, that period's always kind of been interesting to me because I had relatives who fought in the uh, Korean conflict, and uh, one particularly was a Marine who was in the middle of some of it. Uh, and so that that's always kind of stayed with me. The time of the caretaker is, is set right before you were actually born. I wondered, writing about a time that is kind of like your near past or just before you, whether that was more difficult or easier than, say, writing about the Great Depression. It, it was, wasn't was as difficult because I, I didn't have to go back as far. I mean, a number of the advertisements, even you know, some of the things that were there in 1951 were, were things I saw when I was growing up. So that that wasn't difficult. And that's always kind of fun to go back. And the novel set on my grandmother's farm, which was uh, between Blowing Rock and Boone. So I was using a, a, a landscape that actually I'd been, I'd spent a good bit of my uh, writing career wanting to write a novel about, and I'd never been able to until this one. It somehow fit. And uh, interestingly, I think when you read the book, is that, that my grandmother's farm, uh, which is still in the family, I, I actually I own the land nearest the cemetery. There is a cemetery right above it. So, you know, even that part kind of uh, came from uh, just a desire to write a book about that place and to preserve it in memory, uh, because certainly it's changed. Some of the land has been sold off of the original farm. As an Appalachian writer and a writer who writes about Appalachia, what do people outside of Appalachia maybe get wrong about the people of Appalachia? I think what the best writing about the region does, and and the writers I certainly admire the most, uh, I think uh, you hope that while you're showing a, a, a perhaps a cult, you know, there's certain cultural aspects uh, of the region I grew up with, I know, and uh, the music and, and, and certain things and uh, the landscape. But I would like to think that uh, you know, we're like other people. Uh, I think, you know, there certainly have been situations because of the history of the place and, and that so much has been taken away uh, of the wealth at times, that that certainly has had an impact. I, I one one thing I kind of wanted to do in this book, I, I dealt more with a small town Appalachia, and and even in the past, and I think sometimes everybody forgets that you know not everybody was living in a cabin or whatever in 1951, um, including my my family. I guess just the hope that while I'm revealing something about the culture, uh, that I'm also reminding where humanity. Uh, I think the goal, I think always, is that you don't want to sentimentalize the people. You don't want to demonize them. Because to me, sentimentalizing uh, a group of people in, in a novel is, in many ways, just as bad. Because either way, you're you're just simply denying their humanity. One of the things that I liked about your book was it, it wasn't kind of a, a, a misty-eyed look at the past. Uh, no. <laughs> this, this, this wasn't Mayberry. Yeah, and it's not that lost Eden either. I, I think that people have been essentially uh, pretty much, as you get to the core of being a human being, I think it pretty much has stayed the same through several thousand years at least. And uh, But that is, uh, I think sometimes it is interesting to uh, to try to capture a place. And, and one thing I've enjoyed in my work, you know, this is my 20th book, is trying to uh, I hope that it all kind of works like a quilt, you know, that each collection kind of ties into this overall, you know, interest in, in the history. And I'm not the first writer to do this. I Robert Morgan has done it beautifully. But I think there is something uh, for me personally that uh, my mother's a great quilter. And, and I've always thought of my work as being like uh, each collection, whether it's poetry collection stories, that it's uh, another patch but it all, in a sense, is connected. So, you know, I've, I've set books at certain times I thought were pretty crucial moments, particularly in the region. Um, and I think this period in the 50s, you know, you're really starting to see a lot of shifts then, too. Well, uh, looking at your collected works, uh, you kind of got your success, in, at least as publishing, a little later. 
do you think it makes much difference when an artist finds his audience when he maybe has his brush for success is it you think it's better to get it early or, or have you enjoyed it more you think as since you got it like in middle age i think it's a lot easier if you get it later if you if you don't give up <laughs> for me particularly i think it was really i'd been publishing i guess about six or seven books before i had one that really got more attention outside the region and uh, but I think that was good for me as a writer. I, I would not want to uh, have success, have had success early. I think that's tough. You have to be very uh, careful uh, when that happens, I think, to just kind of not lose your bearings. I've been pretty happy with the pace of what recognition I've gotten. You have a big milestone coming up. So how do you feel about that? Oh, wow. For two generations, none of uh, my, you know, my parent, my grandparent, grandfathers, and my father didn't make it to sixty. So in a way, I feel like uh, I've survived longer than I than I thought I might. But I mean, I feel like I've I've had a good life. I, I feel like I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to do something I loved, and, and which the writing and, and to keep doing that. Uh, you know, one of the great things is I've I've had relationships, particularly uh, you know with people such as Lee Smith and uh, the late Jim Wayne Miller. And it's been, it's been a, a good life. I, you know, I've had a good, good family and all that's, that's been good. I feel very fortunate. I think in a way this book, I've always admired writers who late in their careers, it's almost as if they wanted to give their readership, their audience, a kind of almost like a little farewell gift and, and a gift of hope and of uh, a reminder of decency, uh, I, I think of uh, Faulkner's last book, The Reavers, which is you know, probably his funniest book or, or most overtly humorous book. Uh, John Cheever's Falconer uh, does that so well. This book kind of felt that way for me. I, I kind of wanted to, to look at what's best about us. And, and I think particularly because the country's been so stratified recently. I think we're we're all we're constantly looking for the worst in each other, and uh, th this book I, I hope kind of, while not being sentimental, does remind us that something I do believe that I think most people are good, most. And uh, William Faulkner said that he felt like most people were a little bit better than uh, their circumstances ought to allow. And that right. quote stayed with me because I think it's probably true. Uh, most people, most, most people. people. <laughs> You mentioned like the word farewell. Are you looking at this as the, as the last thing that you, you're going to put out there? Are you still writing? Or This book took so long. I mean, it's not a, no a long novel, but I, I kept making false starts. Uh, I ended up writing about 1,000 pages typed uh, before I got the 250 pages, that 55 pages that worked. But uh, I'm, yeah, right now I'm kind of just wanting to go back to stories and I feel like I'm not going to write another novel. If I did something, it'd be really, really different. I mean, something like something comic. This one kind of, uh, I wouldn't mind it being, okay, this is kind of his final comment you know, on, on if any wisdom he's learned in his life. You know. The book is called The Caretaker. Ron, thanks for talking with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Coming up, researchers at Virginia Tech look at how dance may benefit brain development. Dancers are better able to connect that sensory information, the incoming information, whether it's visually through the eyes or through touch, and then connect that to motor output. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by 16 Hands, presenting self-guided studio tours with handmade crafts in Floyd County, Virginia, October 21st and 22nd. Information at 16hands.com. Scientists have long known that physical movement is good for our brains. Studies have found that more recess helps kids to score better grades. But what about dancing? Researchers at Virginia Tech are looking at how dance and other types of exercise may benefit brain development. Radio Accu's Roxy Todd reports. 
In downtown Pulaski, 10 ballet students gather for class. Their teacher, Sarah Alderman, leads them through a warm-up. Some of these students have been training for more than 10 years. In another class, 15-year-old Lucas Fisk is learning dance for the first time. He and his dad talked with me on Zoom after class. Lucas, early on, uh, had some coordination things that, that he was struggling with. not very with. coordinated. Well, you weren't very coordinated. When he was younger, Lucas went to a specialist who taught him exercises that helped the right and left sides of his brain work more in tandem with each other. Swimming also helped. He was reluctant to take dance, but this past year, he gave it a try. I think that dance has definitely helped me to focus on movement, and I, I think it does have an impact on the brain because I got more efficient at it. Researchers at Virginia Tech are studying how dancing influences brain activity. Neuroscientist Julia Basso, a dancer herself, is leading the study. For me, dance goes a, a bit above and beyond general physical activity. This is the sound from a recent dance performance at the Moss Arts Center. Basso's team attached helmets to three dancers to measure their brain activity. A computer produced music from their brain activity. The dancers could actually hear and dance to it in real time. Studies have found that professional dancers have better connections between different regions of their brains, especially the parts of the brain that have to do with sensory information and movement. Dancers are better able to connect that sensory information, the incoming information, whether it's visually through the eyes or through touch, and then connect that to motor output. Which led Basso to wonder what impact dance has for people with sensory conditions, like autism or ADHD. She and her team recently spent a day measuring the brain activity of performers at Charlie Brown the Musical. A group called Step VA hosted the event. They teach performing arts to people with disabilities. 14-year-old Presley Leviser has been learning dance and theater with the group for eight years. Wendy Leviser is Presley's mom. I think it gives her um, opportunity to be front and center and also to express herself in different ways that she normally probably wouldn't if she wasn't given the opportunity to. Presley has a speech disability. This spring, she was promoted to dance leader and helped choreograph the performance. She says teaching the dance moves to her peers and then watching the show come together was exhilarating. It's kind of like, it out you burst out in flames because you're so excited? Yeah. Presley starts high school in the fall, but says she feels confident about the transition, mostly because of the experience she's had dancing and teaching dance. Back at the Pulaski Dance School, Lucas Fisk says he wants to keep learning dance. His teacher and the other dancers helped him learn to do a cartwheel, something he gave up on years ago. I, mean, I have people who um, ask all the time, like, they're surprised when I tell them I do dance, and it's like, well... Who says boys can't dance? Earlier this month, Lucas performed a hip-hop dance at the dance school's spring recital. On stage, in front of hundreds of people, he seemed confident and at ease, as if he'd been dancing for years. In Pulaski, I'm Roxy Todd. The Biden administration is reviewing applications for billions in federal funding for hydrogen projects around the country, including two in western Pennsylvania. Environmental and community groups worry these supposedly clean energy projects come with big downsides. And they say the plans are being kept from the public. The Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports. Hydrogen is considered a potential source for clean energy as the world steers away from burning fossil fuels, the main cause of global warming. But a growing number of organizations in western Pennsylvania say they're concerned about proposals for a so-called hydrogen hub in the region where a network of companies would produce, process, and use hydrogen. Tom Torres is with the Ohio River Valley Institute, a left-leaning policy think tank that's been critical of the natural gas industry. The group is funded by the Heinz Endowments, which also funds the Allegheny Front. Unfortunately, even at this point, there's very little information about either of the specific hubs and you know what their impacts could be. Torres was at a recent meeting of environmental justice groups to discuss the possibility of a hydrogen hub. Two large consortiums in the region have submitted proposals to the Department of Energy for a piece of the $7 billion in hydrogen funding through President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law, passed in 2021. 
The department is planning to fund six to ten hubs around the country. The law mandated at least two of the hubs be in regions with large natural gas resources. The proposed Appalachian hubs based in western Pennsylvania, one is called Arch 2, the other is called DNA, would produce what is known as blue hydrogen, where hydrogen is stripped out of natural gas and carbon dioxide produced in the process gets injected underground instead of being released into the atmosphere. While few details are known about the proposals, they've attracted big oil and gas companies like Shell and EQT. Torres worries what continued extraction could mean for the region. The method of hydrogen production utilized here involves a significant amount of fossil fuels. And so they'll be producing hydrogen from fracking, which, you know, comes with a lot of associated risk to public health and to the environment. A recent state-funded study found links between fracking and asthma and childhood lymphoma in western Pennsylvania. Other studies have shown links to childhood leukemia, low birth weight, and premature death in the elderly, among other health effects. Environmentalists are also skeptical about blue hydrogen's climate benefits because they say companies haven't yet shown they can capture CO2 from hydrogen production at sufficient rates. And there are concerns that these mega-projects, which will cost in the tens of billions of dollars, simply won't make financial sense and will fail to fulfill their economic promise. Sean O'Leary is a researcher with the Ohio River Valley Institute. It could become the next act in that ongoing distraction of local policy and local and state policymakers from doing work that actually can have positive impact in terms of jobs and incomes. O'Leary thinks that in some industries like steel and cement, hydrogen may be the only good strategy to address climate change. But he wants to see more green hydrogen, which is made using renewable energy to extract hydrogen from water, a process that would not create any greenhouse gases. Another concern are pipelines to carry and dispose of carbon dioxide. At high enough concentrations, CO2 can be deadly. A 2020 CO2 pipeline breach in Mississippi hospitalized dozens of people, some of whom still report having headaches and lung problems. Latricia Adams is the founder of Black Millennials for Flint and a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. She said many people in the Mississippi community where the CO2 pipeline breached didn't even know it was there. They had no idea what was going on. In many instances, didn't even know like what a CO2 pipeline was and how detrimental that could be to a community. In a statement, the Department of Energy said the hubs it approves will have to have community benefit plans describing how they'll interact with community and labor groups and meet the administration's diversity and environmental justice goals. A spokesman for the DNA project did not comment by press time. Arch 2 did not respond to requests for comment. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier. The federal infrastructure law is funding construction and repair of roads and bridges, as well as a major broadband internet build-out. But contractors are having trouble finding enough people with the right skills to do the work. WVPB's Curtis Tate reports on what that looks like in West Virginia. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg got a friendly reception from residents in Wheeling recently. He was there to promote the Biden administration's infrastructure law enacted by Congress and signed by the president in 2021. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, along with the Inflation Reduction Act of last year and other programs, are bringing a lot of federal dollars to places like Wheeling. The city is using a $16 million grant from the infrastructure law to improve its main street. While the construction work was underway outside, Buttigieg spoke at a restaurant downtown. This infrastructure bill is, is so big in its proportions, it's really testing the capacity of the United States. And that's true on everything from raw materials to workforce. After years of disinvestment, federal funds are coming to Appalachia. The goal, say people familiar with Appalachia's strengths and needs, isn't simply to put people to work on jobs that have an expiration date. Rather, it's to build skills that last a whole career. So they can hop from client to client to client and keep, you know, keep a continuous pipeline to flow of projects to where they can continuously employ and maintain their, their organization and grow exponentially. That's Jacob Hanna, Chief Conservation Officer for Coalfield Development in Huntington. His organization trains solar workers, often former coal miners. He expects the influx of federal dollars will create even more opportunities in solar in the region. 
Some of those solar projects could be built on mine sites reclaimed with newly available federal dollars, including one in Hannah's native Mingo County. It will provide 100% of the power the local high school needs. So we're trying to help catch up the workforce to meet the demand of the solar companies that are meeting the demand of this big funding opportunity that's happening. Gail Manchin, the federal co-chair of the Appalachian Regional Commission, says the infrastructure law has brought a wealth of new opportunity for the state and region. Sometimes it only takes a little bit of retraining to build a workforce that's ready for new jobs that are coming to Appalachia, she says, whether it's aerospace or power plants fueled by hydrogen. Hub, where they're talking about coming in with hydrogen uh, plants, they say that if you worked in a coal-fired plant, then you would be able to work in a hydrogen plant. Skill sets are almost identical. And from a regional perspective, Manchin says it's okay for surrounding states to benefit from businesses expanding in West Virginia. Whether it's the Nucor Steel Plant in Mason County or the Form Energy Battery Factory in Hancock County, the new plants in West Virginia may need workers from Kentucky, Ohio, or Pennsylvania. That's just my personal belief that uh, it can't just be a West Virginia project. It can't just be West Virginia work. But some observers are concerned that the workforce may not be ready and the jobs may not sustain the people who need them the most. Joseph Kane, a fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington who focuses on infrastructure's economic role across different regions, says states may be tempted to put the cart before the horse when there's a window of federal funding available. We have this, this like gold rush mentality <laughs> nationally where places are just like tripping over themselves, trying to like get to the buckets of federal money while they can. For example, Kane says a local water utility might have five workers and two or three are eligible to retire. Or they might seek higher paying jobs in other states. Losing 40% to 60% of your workforce at a time when federal money is flowing into water infrastructure isn't ideal, he says. Kane says states need to create a pipeline of skilled trades to do the work over the coming decades. That could be for initial construction or ongoing operations and maintenance. We need to create a talent pipeline, right? Like we, we like the the need is to have a bigger pool of talent in general, even over the next five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, that like all these employers can pull from. If the talent pool is too small, states risk competing with each other for a scarce resource. We're going to compete against each other for those few people. <laughs> And then it's kind of like a race to the bottom where we can't find people to do the work. It's not just boots on the ground, Kane says. Some communities don't have the people they need to write the grants to get the competitive funds in the first place. They're sitting on over $100 billion (laughs) in competitive grants that they can award places. And the the concerns I've heard from places is not even do they have um, the staff to do these projects. They don't even have the grant writers. to get those competitive grants or to apply for them. Manchin says you can't just throw money at a city or county government and expect them to know what to do with it. I think money just passed out without any uh, structure or guidance can can sometimes not be a blessing at all, but uh, be a hardship. That's part of the Appalachian Regional Commission's modern mission. The agency was conceived by President Lyndon B. Johnson's White House as a federal anti-poverty program. In the past, the ARC focused on hard infrastructure, such as a 3,000-mile network of improved highways in the region. In more recent years, the ARC has turned its focus to human infrastructure, education, training, workforce development, and entrepreneurship. Kane says it won't be enough to say you spend a certain amount of money to create a certain number of jobs. A true return on investment would be a build-out of durable skills that workers can use until they retire. Maybe people will get some jobs, but but maybe the bigger point is the fact that they're getting licenses and, and certifications that and skills that allow them to do other sort of work once that construction project ends. Like like, And I haven't gotten a clear answer to that. Which is concerning, right? Because the the money's already going out there. Hannah says big one-time projects can still deliver benefits to a region that's been in distress. So, you know, those those one-off projects, they're valuable, they're beneficial, they're not permanent long-term, but they help sort of get a get a shot in the arm, a jump start, you know, for, for a community in a region. And then what we want to do is be able to place those folks into other opportunities that may be more long-term and long-lasting. Hannah says he's optimistic about the federal funds that are available from several agencies and that the federal government is making coal communities a priority for the investment. Um, And I think right now we're at a very exciting time because the government is willing to invest 
in that experimentation period. Hannah's organization helped grow Solar Hauler into the biggest solar installer in the region. You know, 10 years ago, there, there wasn't even a solar installation company in our region. Um, and so we're, we're trying to catch up really quickly. Now there are six or seven solar companies in the region, Hannah says. Still, Hannah says it's a stretch to transform the workforce in just 10 years when the economy has been based on a single extractive industry, coal, for more than a century. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Curtis Tate in Wheeling. That segment was part of a West Virginia public broadcasting series, Help Wanted, Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force. To hear more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the federal right to abortion, the procedure's been limited in much of Appalachia. It's restricted in Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And in Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia, it's banned outright. That's pushed some providers across state lines, like to a clinic that recently opened in Western Maryland. Emily Rice has more. The Women's Health Center of Maryland in Cumberland will see its first patients on September 13th to provide abortion services to patients across central Appalachia. Originally, the clinic was set to open this summer, but some contractor timelines set the renovation back. Katie Quinones is the executive director of the Charleston-based Women's Health Center of West Virginia. She will serve as executive director of the new Maryland clinic. Pretty standard for renovations. They typically always take longer than you expect. Um, And as abortion providers, we often do what feels like impossible, so we can become pretty ambitious, and uh, (laughs) we might have set an, an early goal. By opening in Maryland, the clinic will be able to employ physicians who are licensed in states with less regulation, easing access to abortion services. We do know that there are a large number of doctors in Maryland um, and regionally that are interested in providing abortion care in the state of Maryland just because where Women's Health Center of Maryland is opening is going to be such a key regional access point for abortion care. Kenyona said the clinic will be a key regional access point for people seeking an abortion near West Virginia and other states that have passed abortion bans. Even in the state of Maryland, only two abortion providers operate, and they only offer first trimester abortions and medication abortion. So again, that limits access to for folks who need procedural abortion and folks who need abortion into the second trimester. Kenyona said that while speaking with other clinics in the planning process of Women's Health Center of Maryland, she learned clinics in Pittsburgh, another option for West Virginia patients, were scheduling out six weeks ahead of time. Really our sincere hope that Women's Health Center of Maryland will be that regional access point for abortion care and hope to alleviate the intense demands that existing abortion providers that have been able to continue to provide that care in their states. The clinic will not only offer abortions, but comprehensive reproductive health care, like contraception, annual exams, breast and cervical cancer screenings, STI testing and treatment, pregnancy and parenting support, and gender-affirming hormone therapy. Women's Health Center of Maryland will be the westernmost abortion provider and gender-affirming hormone provider in the state of Maryland, and it will be the only nonprofit reproductive health care center in Mountain, Maryland. A bill passed during the 2023 legislative session outlaws West Virginians under 18 from being prescribed hormone therapy and fully reversible puberty blockers. It also bans minors from receiving gender-affirming surgery, something physicians say doesn't even happen in West Virginia. Under the law, which will take effect in January 2024, a patient can be prescribed puberty blockers and hormone therapy after receiving parental consent and a diagnosis of severe gender dysphoria from two clinicians, including a mental health provider or an adolescent medicine specialist. Even if the only service that Women's Health Center of West Virginia offered or that Women's Health Center of Maryland will offer was abortion care, that would still be valid and necessary because abortion is part of comprehensive reproductive health care that everyone should have access to. But the reality is that much like many other independent clinics across the country that are providing abortion care, we are also providing other comprehensive reproductive health care. The Women's Health Center of West Virginia continues to provide cancer screenings, contraception, and HIV and STI testing, among other reproductive health care services. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. 
Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. This year marked the 60th anniversary of a terrorist attack that took place in Birmingham, Alabama, which is part of Appalachia. The bombing of the city's 16th Street Baptist Church by four members of the Ku Klux Klan killed four young girls in 1963. WBHM partnered with Gulf States Newsroom to cover commemorations of the event. Reporter Maya Miller takes us to the church, along with elementary school students on a field trip. Students from local middle schools swarm the streets outside of 16th Street Baptist Church. It's field trip day, and outside of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute has been turned into 1963. Vintage cars line one side of the street. Students climb in and out of them. Some even attempt to dial out on a rotary phone. It's all a part of the Watsons Go to Birmingham Day, born from historical fiction about a family on a road trip who visited the city in 1963 and the racial injustices they encountered. Krista Bella is in the sixth grade. She says it's hard to imagine living here at a time when racial violence was publicly acceptable. I think life back then was probably way more upsetting, especially since this beautiful town Birmingham used to be called Bombingham. Kahari is a seventh grader from Huffman Middle School. She says a lot has happened in the last 60 years, but there are still people who are full of hate. Just because of our skin, we should not be judged differently, just like those four girls. Think about it. If there were four non-black women in that building, would the same thing would have happened to them? Corliss Datcher is helping to teach the students about the violence. She works for the Advent Episcopal School. She says teaching race with sensitivity can be difficult, and living in Alabama gives her plenty of historical injustices to point to, like the 16th Street bombing. But times have changed. You have an opportunity to learn with a group of students um, that weren't able to learn together, you know, 60 years ago. Datcher says even though the kids may not be able to fully understand the violence, there's a part of this history everyone can relate to. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. I can attest from recent experience, spotting a bald eagle in the wild is a thrilling sight. But until recently, that was all too rare an experience. For decades, bald eagles' populations dwindled, threatened by pollution, pesticides, and people's expansion into their habitat. But then the bald eagle was federally protected, and the pesticide DDT was banned. And in 2007, the bald eagle was finally taken off the list of endangered and threatened species. But every now and then, a bald eagle still needs help. WMRA's Randy B. Hagee has this story about a young bald eagle being returned to the wild. About 100 people gathered in the shade of walnut trees in a small field at Seven Bend State Park earlier this month. They were eagerly waiting for Ed Clark, the president and founder of the Wildlife Center, to reveal the seven-month-old eagle that would be returned to the wild that day. I've got to go get him out of the box first which is going to be a fairly animated thing to do because he, he doesn't like me very much. But, uh, the eagle's nest blew out of a tree in early April. Megan Dellinger, an education specialist at the park, was one of the rangers who found the bird. She picked it up with a towel to transport it to the wildlife hospital after a biologist determined it had a wing injury. It was so cool. Definitely a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, trying to be as careful as we can, but getting what we needed to accomplish was a lot of fun. It was big. We called it a big baby. It was maybe two feet long with the tail feathers, um, and its talons were about as thick as my fingers. It was really big, but it was fairly docile and calm. Once there, vet staff x-rayed the eaglet and found that the wing had been broken, but had started healing on its own. So it rested up alongside another young eagle at the center until it was ready to fend for itself. Before the release, Clark took questions from the crowd. Oh, good question. Are the parents here and would they recognize it? Parents may still be around, but at this point, they don't want to see this bird. They want him to go get a job. He noted that the valley is a relatively new habitat for eagles. Hundreds of years ago, they would have all lived on the tidal rivers, subsisting on fish. But as the tidewater region has become more heavily populated, some eagles started heading west. 
Out here, they still fish the Shenandoah and smaller rivers, but they also scavenge to get enough food, chowing down on roadkill and whatever hunters leave behind. And that makes them vulnerable to lead poisoning, from bullet fragments that remain in the entrails and carcasses. About 70% of the eagles that come into the wildlife center have lead poisoning. That's why Clark, a hunter himself, is an advocate for copper ammo. Still, though, eagles have made a major comeback in the last 50 years. They were endangered species for a long time because of DDT, pesticide poisoning, and the pesticide that was killing them was doing so in a very subtle way. It was preventing reproduction. And by 1972, here in Virginia, we had 52 eagle nests in the whole state. And that was the low point. But today, we've stopped counting because we have nearly 2,000 eagle nests east of the Blue Ridge. This bird won't be ready to find a mate and build his own nest until about four and a half years of age, when it develops the bald eagle's trademark white head. For now, all of its feathers are a mottled dark brown. Clark grasped the bulky fledgling with both arms and carried it to the center of the field. All right, ready on the count of three. One, two, three. Go, bird! Wow. That is so cool. Yay! He crested over the power line and wheeled around in circles above the hilltop, slowly gaining altitude and seeming to explore the open skies. So the bird is, as you can see, I mean, he's still up here soaring around. That's just remarkable. I, I haven't seen one do that before. You can almost hear him, you know, woohoo, I'm free. Yeah, I was going to say, is it anthropomorphizing to say he's probably enjoying himself right Well, now? no, I bet he is enjoying himself. A lot of times when we release these birds, their initial reaction is to just get away from us. And then they realize they're free. And you can almost see them, you know, shuck their wings out and and recognize it. And their whole posture changes in flight. And that bird's a couple thousand feet in the air now. So uh, that's that's pretty amazing. It's that first flight for that bird uh, outside captivity. So that that's a pretty dramatic way to start. The center also had another eagle release planned for Tuesday morning, September 5th, in Charles City. I'm Randy B. Hagee. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week is provided by Sierra Farrell, Chris Stapleton, the Kessinger Brothers, Sturgill Simpson, and Paul Loomis. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.